Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Green Door" by A. A. Milne. This is first published in the Ladies' Home Journal, uh, December 1925. I'm I'm not super familiar with uh, A. A. Milne, other than he's the guy who created Winnie the Pooh, and I know a little about about Winnie the Pooh's background, but that really doesn't have that much to do with this, or maybe it does. Um, but what I will tell you is I did not find this story because I was looking for A.A. A. Milne. Rather, I found out that there was a story by A.A. A. Milne called The Green Door. And I've been obsessively researching green doors in fiction for several years now. And this one has a great example of the magic of green doors. And I've recently come to understand where they come from. And uh, how they uh-huh. came into into existence, and how they've passed out from from our knowledge. But uh, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that afterwards. Um, would you be able to read the story for us? I'll give it a try, my friend. Thank you, sir. The Green Door by A. A. Milne. One day, when Prince Paravel was a little boy, he was walking with his father, the king, in the gardens of the palace. There was a high stone wall round the garden so that no venturer from outside could get in, nor was there any way by which those inside the garden could get out, supposing, as was less likely, that they wished to do so. But as the young prince was walking with his father, now leaving his hand and running this way and that, now coming back to it again, he espied suddenly, hidden in a tangle of trees, a little green door in the wall. And he gave a cry and ran eagerly to his father. There's a door there, father. I saw a door, a little green door. Shall we go through that door, father? Where does that door go? His father, the king, frowned and said nothing. Did you know there was a door there, father? went on the prince. I didn't. Shall we see where it goes? The king tugged at his beard and frowned again. No, my son, he said at last, we will not go through it. Oh, said Paravel, and the corners of his mouth began to turn down. I did want to go through that dear little door. If you had gone through that door, said the king solemnly, you would never have come back again. Is it a magic door? asked the little prince in an awed whisper. The king pushed his way through the tangle of trees and stood looking at the door. It was locked and there was no key in the lock. It looked as though it had not been opened for years, nor could ever be opened again. With a little sigh of relief, the king turned round for Paravel's hand and drew him away to another part of the garden. What was it, father? whispered Paravel, now a little frightened. It was through that door that King Stephen, your great-grandfather, passed on a summer evening and was seen no more. What happened to him? Nobody ever knew. Some said he was killed by robbers, some that he was eaten by wild beasts. There is a legend that through that door a man steps into an enchanted forest in which he wanders forever. The king, my father was of opinion that, as the door is opened, a bottomless pit forms itself on the other side into which one falls headlong, 
However it be, this is certain that no one of our ancestors who has ventured through that door has ever been seen again. Perhaps there's a dragon waiting on the other side, said the little prince excitedly. Perhaps there is, but we shall do well not to talk of it. We could not unlock the door now if we would, and we would not if we could. The trees will grow over it again, and we shall forget it. But the little prince did not forget it. Often he thought of it and told himself strange stories of the wonders to which the green door led. Sometimes it came into his dreams, and then the way was full of terrors. But when he awoke to the sunlight, then the way led by ripples of brooks and twittering of birds to a happiness beyond his understanding. And as he grew up, he heard much idle talk of it by those who had never seen the door. And he noticed that each one who talked of it told a different story, yet each one pledged his word that his story was the only true story of it. But on this they all agreed, that whoever had passed through the door had passed out of mortal sight forever. In due time, Perivale grew up and succeeded his father as king of Wistaria. At the time of his coronation, there was great account in the country of the new king. It was said by those who should have been in a position to know that King Perivale was the handsomest, the wisest, the most manly and most gallant young king that had ever sat upon the throne. It was reputed that there was no science within the knowledge of the most learned magicians of the country at which he could not better them. No form of manly exercise at which he did not surpass the most talented of his subjects. With his bow, he could split a wand at 200 paces. With his sword, he could engage at the same time any three swordsmen in his army. He knew more of the art of fighting than any of his generals, of the art of hunting more than any of his huntsmen, and had only Wistaria been in possession of a seacoast, he would undoubtedly have been fully qualified to take his country's fleet into a victorious action. All this and more was commonly reported of him. A little later, there were other stories told of him, for by this time it had been announced that the beautiful Princess Lilia was coming to Astaria to wed with the king. And it was told how the king and the princess had happened upon each other in the forest, neither knowing who the other was and how they had met secretly on many a day afterward and had fallen in love with each other, but had feared that they could not marry because Lilia, as Percival thought, was not a princess, because Lilia, as Paravel thought, was not a princess, and Paravel, as Lilia thought, was not a king. How delighted then were they when they discovered that a marriage which would bring everlasting happiness to them would also bring pleasure to the people of their countries. This and other stories were told of the king and his bride, and when the princess sent a picture of herself done by her own court painter as a gift to King Paravel, all who saw the picture said that indeed she was the loveliest lady in the world and that his majesty was blessed above all men in taking her to wife. But Paravel was not reconciled to his happiness. For in truth, he had not yet seen the Princess Lilia, and though it was the custom of his family to marry in this way, yet he would have preferred to choose for himself the lady whom he would wed. 
It had been his father's wish and the wish of his people that Wistaria and the country of the Princess Lilia should be united by this marriage. And Paravel was ready enough to do what seemed to be his duty, but as he wandered through the palace on the day before the royal wedding, he was a little melancholy, feeling that the happy life which he had known till now was over. And wandering thus, his thoughts in the past, carelessly opening a chest here or a cupboard there, he came suddenly upon a silver key. Not for a moment did he doubt. It was the key to the little green door, and as he held it between his fingers, all his childish memories of the green door came back to him, the fears, the wonders, and the fancies, and suddenly he knew that if he ever was to go through that door, it must be now, before his fate was linked with that of the Princess Lilia. As yet, she had not seen him. If she never was to see him now, how could she grieve for him? He hurried through the palace and into the garden. None saw him go, save a waiting maid who watched him idly. The trees had hung new branches over the little door, and he had to force his way through. But in the end, he came to it, and with a thrill of anticipation, half fearful, half eager, he turned the lock and so passed through the green door into the unknown world beyond. And there was nothing there. No dragons, no robbers, no bottomless pits. Alas, not even an enchanted forest. The door shut with a click behind him, and he was on the outside of the palace wall with the royal deer park in front of him. He moved a dozen paces away, looked about him, and saw that he was still in the world he knew. A little amused, a little angry. He came back again, better to have gone on imagining than to have found the reality so commonplace. Yet perhaps not entirely commonplace, for now that he looked for the door, he could not find it. That was curious. Yet the explanation might be simple enough. The door no doubt had been made of stone on this side, the same color as the wall, so that it should not be seen by the passerby. For a little while, Perval amused himself by searching for it, and then, remembering that in any case he had left the key on the other side of the door, he left and set out leisurely on his walk round the palace walls until he should reach the main gate of the castle. The waiting maid, watching idly, had seen his majesty push through the trees which fringed the wall, watching eagerly, had seen him come to a little green door and put a key to its lock, watching fearfully, had seen him open the door and pass beyond her sight. Breathlessly, she ran to tell the others. As Paravel came to the main gate, he remembered that it was on this afternoon that the princess was to set foot in the palace for the first time, and for the first time to see him. Looking down at his clothes, torn and dirtied by the trees through which he had pushed his way, he smiled to think that she would regard him as if she met him thus, and he made the more haste to reach the privacy of his room. But he was never to reach it. A soldier at the gate barred the way. Well, he said gruffly, what do you want? Nothing, my man, but to get to my own chamber, said Paravel mildly. Then right about turn and get to it, said the soldier, lowering his pike. I perceive that you are new to your duties, said Paravel pleasantly. I am the king. Other soldiers lounged up from the courtyard. What's this, said one, who seemed to be in some authority. The silly fellow says he's the king. What shall we do with him? 
fool. I am the king, thundered Paravale. At this declaration, there was a roar of laughter. One of the soldiers came and looked at him more closely. I, you're not unlike, he said, save that a king is a king. And a common man is a common man. Take my advice, friend, and get along home before trouble comes to you. At this moment, one of the women came running into the courtyard. The king, she cried, the king, he went through the green door, the green door. He will never come back. Many of the soldiers ran to her, eager to hear more. But he who was in authority came and looked again at Paravel. Aye, he will never come back he murmured to himself, but one who is like the king comes in his place, saying that he is the king, my friend, and he put a hand on Paravel's shoulder. This is very curious. Your tale came pat to the moment. Doubtless you will be able to tell us that you knew the king was not in the palace to give you the lie. He gave an order, and Paravel was seized and marched into the palace. After all, he said to himself, that little green door seems not to have been as commonplace as I thought. And so it proved. An hour later, the chancellor was summing up the matter to the satisfaction of all but the prisoner. It is clear, he said, what has occurred. His late lamented majesty, in spite of all warnings, ventured through the green door on the other side of that door lurked a fiend, a monster capable of assuming the shape and in some measure the appearance of his victim. To rend his majesty in pieces, to garb himself in his majesty's clothes, is the work of a moment. And so garbed with designs upon the throne itself, this monster presents himself at the palace gates. But though he can assume to some slight extent his majesty's appearance, he cannot assume his majesty's great qualities. Can he engage three swordsmen at once? He refuses even to try. Can he surpass in excellence of learning our wisest philosophers? He laughs at the idea of it. How then can he be that most endowed of all monarchs, our noble king, Paravel? True, said Paravel grimly to himself. How can I be? But there came an interruption in the cheers which greeted this pronouncement amid whispers which rose to shouts of the princess, the princess is here. Her royal highness made her way into the hall and men murmured, now indeed we shall know if he be the king for true love such as the princess Lilia has for his majesty cannot be deceived. What is this they tell me that his majesty has been basely murdered? She cried out. The chancellor explained. Then why do none of you follow him through the green door? She asked scornfully. The chancellor explained not only how useless, but also how dangerous it was. Cowards, she cried, afraid of a little green door. It is rather a mysterious little door, put in Paravel apologetically. She wheeled round at his voice. Who is this? She demanded. And now each man nudged his neighbor and muttered, you see, she does not know him. It is not the king. The chancellor explained that Paravel was certainly an impostor and that probably he was the wicked monster who had made away with his lamented majesty. And yet he is not ill-looking, murmured Lilia. Indeed, no, agreed Paravel. There was a time when I was spoken of as the handsomest man in Wistaria. Silence, fellow, called those nearest to him and hustled him out of her sight. Well, said Lilia, when all were silent again, who is going through that door to find the king? Each man waited for his neighbor to answer. 
No wonder your king left you, she said scornfully. Show me the door and I will go. So they went with her to the garden and they watched her as she passed through the little green door. Then they came back to their prisoner. Perchance, said one, since we have caught the fiend who lurked behind the green door, she will come safely back. Suddenly, while they were questioning their prisoner, a commotion arose at the other end of the hall and people cried, the princess, the princess, she has come back to us. And in a moment, all were crowded round. What did your royal highness see? They cried. There was nothing there, she said, and looked long at Paravel. And she nodded at him as if now she understood. And Paravel smiled, and she smiled back at him. Did your royal highness find the body of his lamented majesty? Asked the chancellor. I found the king, said Lilia, still smiling. Where, where, they cried. Here, she said, and pointed to Paravel. Then there arose a great uproar of talking, and one said, Yet why did she not recognize him at first? And another, He has admitted that he is not the king. And a third, But we know that the king is dead. Then, as they talked to him, a whisper ran through them like wind over corn, and none ever knew who started it. And the whisper said, Is it the princess? When the whisper came to Paravel, he threw up his head and laughed loud and long. What is it? said Lilia anxiously to him. My dear, they say now that you are not the princess, but an impostor like myself. This is indeed a magic door. And now the certainty grew that this also was a fiend, passing itself off as the greatly to be lamented Princess Lilia. Then the chancellor was inspired to put the matter beyond all doubt. He ordered that Lilia should be taken beneath the portrait of the princess, which had been sent to his majesty as a wedding gift. And as soon as she stood beneath it, there came a shout of derision, for all saw that whereas the portrait was of a surpassingly beautiful lady with regular features, the girl beneath was of no more than a certain wayward prettiness. Bind them together, ordered the chancellor, while we consider what to do with them. I had not intended to give you a wedding ring so rough, smiled Paravel, but we are indeed joined together now. He looked down into her eyes. The painter did not do you justice, he murmured. You are something better than the Princess Lilia. But now the Chancellor had made his decision as to their fate. Burnings, drownings, stonings, all these happy suggestions of the people had been considered and rejected as beneath the merits of the case. I have, said the Chancellor softly, a prettier plan. These two inhuman monsters have failed in their audacious plot. Think you how that failure will be punished by their brother fiends now waiting for them outside the green door. Let us drive them then through the door and listen safely on this side of it to the vengeance which is wreaked upon them. There was a shout of approval. Paravel and Lilia looked at each other, and a little sob of relief broke from her. Then, bound wrist to wrist, they were driven to the little green door. Last time, murmured Lilia, we went through the door as king and queen and came out as man and woman. This time we go through as man and woman and come out. How? Perhaps as lovers, said Paravel gently, for that is again to be king and queen. She dropped her eyes and the color came suddenly into her cheeks. 
I wonder, she whispered. So for the last time, they passed through the little green door together and out into the world beyond. Hmm. Very nice. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Uh, this is a fairy tale, right? <laughs> I guess. Set in, uh... it's, it's, it's a fairy tale in one sense of the word. It's not a derivative of an oral tale, but yes. Yeah, it's set in uh, Wistaria. I noticed that the the princess's neighboring kingdom is not named. Um, her name is Lilia. His name is Paravale. Uh, Wistaria. These are all like planty sort of names, right? Lil- lilies uh, and uh, well, periwinkles and. <laughs> I think Paravale's name has a different meaning, but okay. Yeah, well, you know, Vale. Uh, I I was I was thinking a little bit about that, but honestly. Um, what I loved about this story when I read it is it is a confirmation of a thesis that I have been working on for many years. And <laughs> it does this really interesting thing where it says, uh, the, the, it literally says my thesis, which is green doors are magic doors. <laughs> now, the one thing that's in here that's not in... Most of the other ones is that the door is little. It's repeatedly called little. It's not in the title, but they call it a little green door. And um, when the boy first sees it uh, with his father, uh, who isn't named, but his grandfather's named, um, the father tugs on uh, tugs on his beard and says, "Ah, yes, uh, that's a bad door. Don't go through that door." Um, so I'd love to spill the beans on this uh, origins of this because I've I've recently discovered that, and I think it's really cool. Uh, but I w- Spill on. Yeah, so, um, but uh, I think you actually turned me on to one of the stories that has uh, this in it. I, it's been so long since we read it, but uh, The Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells. It's from mm-hmm. 1906, has a green door. It's not in, in a garden. It's in a, it's a door that moves throughout the person's life, the main character's life, and he first encounters it as a child, and uh, goes through it once and then sees it, I think, twice or three times more and then eventually goes through it and he's dead. But um, that's just one instance. Um, there's a Mary Wilkins Freeman story from 1896 called The Green Door, um, which is a magic door story. Uh, there's uh, in The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins' door, which is a round door that's green, leads to an adventure. Um and in fact, there's a uh, a scene in there where Gandalf writes a magic symbol on the door, and then that makes a whole bunch of dwarfs show up, right? Um, there's a, a famous movie, <laughs> calling it a movie, Behind the Green Door. There's a song, um, Green Door, What's the Secret That You're Keeping, right? So this is a background thing that's hovering in, in a, some sort of dead trope that people don't think about anymore. But the origins, I think, are from a traditional thing that happens in households of the 19th century and perhaps earlier, uh, where servants live in the house with you, but you don't go into their area and they don't they minimize their presence in your area. And the door that separates the servants from the, uh, the rich people... <laughs> is a green door um, covered in a gray, uh, a green felt cloth called baize. And this is like a, it was a big trend. Sometimes it would be a red, 
bays, but this is the same material that's on um, like uh, pool tables. It's it's there for a couple of reasons. One is the, the theory is it dampens sound, so any noises that are going on in the servants' area of the house don't affect the uh, owners of the house's life, and also that's where food would be prepared, and it uh, prevents the uh, smells from passing through as easily. It's like kind of like a seal, but it would be this this magic boundary as a kid, right? You you would see the servants pass through this door and you don't understand class yet. These are the people who are, who are changing your diaper and, you know, bringing you food and they're kind to you, but they they are not family and you are not allowed to go visit them beyond the green door. And there was a um, even a, an idea that if a child goes beyond the green door they might upset the cook and the cook good cooks were very important and sort of you wanted to keep the cook on a uh in your home if they were a good cook because of course the rich people who have these doors and these servants in their house they don't know how to cook so if the (laughs) cook goes there's a big problem so you got to keep the little kids out from underfoot of the servants because it's a boundary. So this would be something that the parents would tell to their kids. Don't go beyond the green door. And then it's just a mystery as to why. They don't understand this servant, uh, you know, owner relationship. They have to learn that. And so I think that's where all these stories, and there's many of them, uh, come from. There's this sort of vague childhood memory of a boundary a magic boundary between the world of our world and the world of fairyland in a certain sense. And in this story, we actually have the effect of a changeling, right? They, they pass through the door and now nobody recognizes them. I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool too. I, 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 I didn't know that a green baize covered door was what was supposed to separate the uh, the upstairs from the downstairs. I'll I'll take your word for it because mm-hmm. you've you're I've an assiduous scholar. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'll take your word for it. I think that that may be one of the reasons that green doors come up so often because they are as opposed to just. I mean, all doors are boundaries, but right. green doors have have this uh, about them. Um, but green itself has lots and lots of other uses mm-hmm. that I think are somewhat relevant here. The green room where people wait to go on stage right. is called the green room because that's where understudies wait in case it happens that they need to go on that night. Mm-hmm. So they are green because they are not the mature, well-developed actors. Right. And green, of course, uh, it, one of its most you know, potent uses is as vegetation, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the springiness of youth, our salad days. And as I look at this particular story, the green door marks a movement from one world to another, just as you say. It also marks a movement from 
a time before one is involved in an erotic relationship mm-hmm. until one is involved in an erotic relationship. That's why, uh, although they're already bound by their wrists, um, the princess casts her eyes down when Perivel says, perhaps now we'll be lovers, mm-hmm. and that's to be a king and queen. But there is more there. The The opening passage has Perivel walking around in the garden with his father, the king. Mm-hmm. Now, I have come right out and spill my beans. Um, I think that one needs to see this as a contrast and comparison. Uh, not that one shouldn't see what you've said, but also see it as a contrast and comparison with the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah. Because as Adam walked around with God, the father, before the fall, he could not after the fall. God did not cast himself out of Eden, but there is a a, a gateway to go east of Eden when Adam and Eve fall mm-hmm. um, that is that is guarded by seraphim-wielding uh, flaming swords. Here, what is behind them is just the community that doesn't want them to come back. They mm-hmm. could walk around again and come back together, but they choose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, there's something going on here which takes the role of God and it transports it or transposes it into the community. This is a community of faith, and the story makes that clear. They would have said that Paravel was the greatest naval commander if only they had a coastline. Right. <laughs> As they know things without ever having seen them. Mm-hmm. And so they know about the death, they know about the monster, and they know, in fact, that Paravel doesn't really look like Paravel. But why is that? It's because of faith. When they look at the princess, we realize that faith is generated by art because they look at the picture and, in fact, she is not the real Lilia. But to Paravel, who wants the reality of a human relationship rather than one based on faith, no matter how beautiful that faith may be, no matter how much it may elevate him, he says that the artist didn't do you justice. Mm -hmm. He would rather have her as she really is. So what we, if we look at the garden of Eden and the story of the fall, Adam and Eve are cast out because they have disobeyed the father here. There is disobedience to the father, but in fact, it is not into to death at all as it is in, uh, in Eden, it is to a truer, more accurate view of life. Mm-hmm. Now, it is the society that has said, don't do it, not God. And society can be ignored. And that's, in fact, what they do. The, what we have here is an anti-Eden. I'd like to make two other connections with the Eden story, though, that I think collaborate in giving the fullness of this story. At the end of this story, they go out and they look at each other and they're feeling kind of good. At the end of Paradise Lost, these are the very last lines as Adam and Eve um, are leaving. They're on the outside now of the Garden of Eden, green, the garden. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. So, you know, 
Milton doesn't seem to be saying it's better outside the garden, but Milne seems to be saying it is. Mm. Although they both look at being beyond the garden as a place where human beings can really connect with each other. Interestingly, we get this wonderful detail. The first of the line of which Perivel is now the last to go through the, the green door was your great-grandfather, King Stephen, mm-hmm. who never came back. Well, Catholics will know that St. Stephen is the first martyr. For what was he martyred? St. Stephen was among those Pharisees who argued with Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes St. Paul, and in fact argues against, excuse me, Saul is, is one of the Pharisees, and argues against the authority of the church, of the, 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 the rabbis, the, the judicial authorities. St. Stephen argues in that the judicial authorities should not, in fact, be accepted, right? That it's Jesus's word that we must have. Saul is one of the Pharisees. Stephen is against him. And he is stoned to death. Stephen becomes a martyr because he throws off the authority of the institutionalized religion. In fact, Perivel, around the valley, Mm. Perivel becomes fulfilled because he throws off the authority of those who have received blind faith. Mm -hmm. So I see what you mean about the green door. It works perfectly. It marks two different worlds, a world of belief and a world of realism. But within the world of realism, it is possible to feel love. This is, I think, a completely uplifting story. Not in the way that the story of the fall is, certainly not as re-understood in the New Testament, but it is uplifting in the here and now. This is a fairy tale for grown-ups. Uh, I agree, and uh, it it pays rereading because one of the things that happens early on uh, makes me think that this story is um, cyclical. So uh, there's a line. I'll read this, and then I'll read a, a little longer section. Often this is um, Prince Perivel. Often he thought of it, that is the green door, and told himself strange stories of the wonders to which the green door led. Uh, so it's not other people who are telling him strange stories. He's telling himself strange stories. Then on the final column of the first page near the bottom, a little later there were stories told of him. For by this time it had been announced that the beautiful Princess Lilia was coming to Wistaria to wed the king. And it was told how the king and the princess had happened across each other in the forest, neither knowing who the other was, and how they had met secretly on many a day afterward, and had fallen in love with each other, but had feared that they could not marry because Lilia, as Perivale thought, was not a princess, and Perivale, as uh, Lilia thought, was not a king. So that actually happens, (laughs) right, later on in the story. <laughs> well, they didn't encounter each other in the forest. No, they didn't. But, but yes, they did think. But that now the they other do. Wasn't exactly <laughs> right. Exactly. So they pass through that door, and that that rumor becomes true. That idle rumor, and there's a lot of idle rumor going on in this story. In fact, the word "idle" 
or idly comes up multiple times. I circled a whole bunch of them. Um, there's one other very trippy little thing that makes me think that uh, there's more to these kinds of hidden tropes um, that we've sort of forgotten about. Um, how does how does Perry Vale eventually get through that green door? He goes around the house and he pulls out drawers and he opens cupboards and what does he find? A silver key. He picks it up. It fits perfectly. And he knew it would. H.P. Lovecraft wrote a story called The Silver Key that does practically the same story. And Greville MacDonald's um, biography of his father, George MacDonald, who wrote an adult fairy tale called Lilith, is The Silver Key. Wow. You know, if it's the golden key, it still fits. Okay. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, um, fairy tales aren't just for kids. That's why we pick them up. Mm-hmm. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.